From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Welcome to another edition of Electionomics. Today, we are going to talk about the upcoming election and this current pandemic with John Delaney. He is former 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, also former three-time congressman from Maryland's 6th Congressional District. And John, so good to have you here. Thanks for making the time. It's so great to be with you. Um, I know you're home as we are in our homes uh, doing this uh, podcast, and you're there in Maryland. And I know that your governor, Larry Hogan, who is a, a Republican, has been quite critical of uh, President Trump's handling uh, of this pandemic. Would just love to get your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on the lockdown currently in place in the state you're in. So I think Governor Hogan has done a really nice job. So I give him very high marks. I think he responded appropriately. You know, he didn't hang back. He looked at the science, he looked at the data. My sense is he brought in a good team of health policy experts. I think he was appropriate and when he locked the state down, I think his measures in terms of what you're allowed to do and you know what's considered an essential worker has been accurate. I think he's been appropriately critical of the president, particularly around testing, uh, which we all know is a huge issue. Uh, it has been an issue and it'll increasingly become an issue when we try to reopen our economy. And even the other day, he was able to get 500,000 or 5 million, I forgot the number of tests from South Korea that he kind of cut his own deal because he wasn't getting tests from the federal government. And the first shipment of those just landed in BWI Airport, I think, last night or the day before. So I think uh, Larry Hogan's done a very nice job. John, uh, you withdrew from the presidential race at the end of January and you have en endorsed Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden is, uh, I mean, he's uh, kind of in the background at the moment, or literally he's in the basement of his house in Delaware. Uh, I mean, he's popping up on news interviews and things like that. Um, and he has actually put out his own uh, plan for uh, battling the coronavirus. Should he be doing more? I mean, what would your strategy be if you were advising him? So, and, and I am doing things with the Biden campaign, you know, in, in full disclosure um, and work. With oh, why, don't you tell us what you, why don't you tell us what your role is with the campaign? So, I, you know, I've, I've been helping them out on economic policy. I, I helped them out recently uh, with uh, something called short time work, which is a uh, proposal that they put out, which is uh, for the U.S. government to adopt something similar to what Germany has. Germany has this thing called short time work, which in a recession or a national emergency, the government will designate certain industries as being hit very hard. And what what can happen is those industries can go to the government and say they need to reduce their labor costs by a certain amount. And what the government says is don't lay anyone off, cut everyone's hours or pay by a certain percentage, and then we, the government, will make up the difference. And so the benefits of that program is it targets industries that are most affected, you can have different percentages depending upon the industry, how badly they're affected. You create a system where workers get full compensation, but they stayed employed, so they keep their benefits. And then what happens is because you keep everyone at their company, you keep the labor market intact to some extent. So when things turn around, it's in place and you don't have to go through the process of rehiring and trying to get people back on board. It's a much better system. If we had it now, um, we would be doing a better job than this PPP program and other things, which I, you know, I, I applaud all those efforts, but I just think there's a better way to do it. And we're going to have these things. We're going to have recessions. We're going to have national emergencies. We're going to have natural disasters. Germany's had the system for a while. It works in the financial crisis. Their unemployment 
only went up by a half a point and ours went up by, you know, five or six percent. So it's proven to work. And uh, the vice president just rolled it out as something he's going to push for as president. I think we should have it now. And so I worked with him on that. But I think, look, it's hard for the vice president, obviously, to to um, cut through right now because everything's focused on the coronavirus and what all the states are doing. I mean, governors are really at the forefront, as we know. You mentioned Governor Hogan before. And obviously, the White House and the federal government, the Congress gets a lot of attention. So I think he's doing the right things. You know, what I want to see him do is start talking more about the right way to reawaken our economy after this, because that's going to be, I think, increasingly the focus as we get close uh, to November. I think dealing with the pandemic as a public health issue will clearly still be front and center, but I think we'll be in a different spot in the fall as it relates to the public health situation. And increasingly, the focus will be on who can better kind of uh, reawaken our economy and get us back on track. Quick follow up on that and then back to Alexis. Uh, could you just identify, let's say, three uh, ways, a short list of ways Biden can distinguish himself from Trump when it gets to that point in the fall on uh, restarting the economy? So just we won't talk public health. We'll just start restarting the economy. I think that we are going to need to really get money into small to mid-sized businesses, because unfortunately, no matter what we do to support these businesses, I think there's going to have to be a lot of new business formation to step in and fill the void. So I think a whole bunch of new programs focused on really getting money, not to like the next hot startup in Silicon Valley, because there's already plenty of capital for those things, but really get money to small and mid-sized businesses. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of them, you know, we're going to lose a bunch of them and we're going to need a bunch of new ones. And so I think programs there, I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is infrastructure. This is a perfect time to large, launch a very large scale national infrastructure program. We need jobs. Those are good paying jobs. We know we have this significant infrastructure deficit and um, interest rates are at obviously historic lows. So it's a great time to be doing even public and private partnerships, but also direct public spending and infrastructure. So that's the uh, that's the second thing I do. And I also think, you know, we're going to look at our healthcare system after this and realize it doesn't have surge capacity. And we're going to look at a lot of our supply chain and realize we've allowed too many critical industries and infra and, uh, you know, products to be made overseas. We're already seeing that now. And so there's going to be a lot of need for building surge capacity in healthcare and reshoring and rebuilding a lot of industries in the United States. So I think policies that target those and encourage those behaviors. So those would be my three things, small business, infrastructure, and surge capacity in healthcare and reshoring of uh, a lot of jobs. John, do you think that that last bit about healthcare could actually play into President Trump's narrative? I mean, he's had this sort of America first uh, narrative since uh, we, we when he was on the campaign trail, um, the idea that more should be done within our own borders, that supply chains should be taken care of um, to the extent that we can have control over them more within our own borders. Do you think that that might actually play to Trump more than it would Biden at that point? Well, I, I think, listen, I think what Trump is, is a, he's a nationalist and an isolationist, which is, I think, the wrong answer to every question. And I think his instincts around effectively closing off the country uh, from immigration and a lot of trade around the world, 
that's different than saying as a nation, we shouldn't allow drugs that saves people's lives to be made in China, you know, and, and have no capacity to do it here. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's just, you know, that's just negligent on the part of of the government and the private sector of our country. So I think isolating yourselves from the world is not the right answer. So I, where I think the vice president is and where he should be is he wants to invest in America. He wants to build industries in America. But he also understands, as this virus shows us, that what happens around the world is more important to us today than it's ever been. And we have to be engaged globally because that's in our, our best interest. John, when you ran uh, for president, I was a fan of the I was a fan of your campaign of the and I would say um, of your policy standpoints. I mean, you were very pragmatic and moder moderate, um, you know, kind of, you know, right in the middle between what Democrats and Republicans really are these days. Um, what is where do you see the, the Democratic Party shaking out uh, once this election is over? I mean, it, it, it seems pretty clear it has moved to the left. Uh, but there are also questions about, I mean, now that Joe Biden, let's just say he is the nominee. Uh, I mean, is he just giving lip service to, uh, you know, some ideas of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Or do you think that the party itself really is moving measurably to the left in a way that can it can actually get done some of those things on the progressive agenda, you know, spe specifically re regarding health care, for example? Yeah. So healthcare is a great example, right? So I think the right place for us to be as a matter of policy is universal health care, where everyone is health care is a basic human right. And we're not there as a country, obviously. We don't have a universal health care system. Too many on the left had this purity test around universal health care, that it had to be this single payer health system, right, which is the government effectively providing all of health care, which I think is a terrible model. And I think if you look around the world, that's not actually proving to be a good model. Germany's model is actually proven to be the best, which is effectively what I advocated for, which is a mixed model universal plan where everyone gets a backstop of a form of government health care, but then they have the ability to get options and get private plans if they want. That's what Germany has. Their system is clearly performing better than any other healthcare system in the world right now. And that's what we should have. So where I want to see the Democratic Party and where I believe Vice President Biden will take us is towards achieving progressive goals such as universal health care, but being pragmatic and data driven about how you come up with that plan. So a single payer system, for example, if you look at the facts and the data, it doesn't deliver the best healthcare outcomes. It doesn't deliver innovation. It doesn't deliver the kind of things the market people want. But a mixed model universal plan does. It gives everyone health care and it allows us to have the kind of optionality and flexibility in our healthcare market that so many Americans want. So I think the vice president has the ability to build that kind of big tent coalition. And I think he's uniquely positioned to do that. He has moved very progressive on his goals around climate and healthcare, et cetera. But there's a level of pragmatism to it. And he's our nominee. So that's where the party is now, almost by definition. Alexis, I want to ask about, uh, yeah. go back to the presidential campaign, unless you want to follow through on any of this on uh, current health care, a couple of health care questions, but I'll, sure. I'll narrow it down to this one. You know, we're seeing a lot of different industries, John, um, give their workers hazard pay. Uh, some of the grocery companies, food companies, uh, as their workers have to come on and keep the engine of this economy running to the extent that it can during this pandemic. Do you think healthcare workers should be getting 
hazard pay as well? Because as far as I know, they're not. So how can we take better care of those people who are on the front lines? I absolutely they think they should be getting hazard pay. I mean, we, we all see it in our day-to-day -day lives. Most of us are at home, but we venture out and we go to the grocery store and we go to the drug store and we get some things. And you see these people and they're working. They're getting up every day. They're going to work. They're probably working longer hours than they ever have because, you know, some of their colleagues are unfortunately sick or whatever, can't come to work. There's a lot of that going on behind the scenes that we don't see. People are driving, you know, goods and making the whole economy work. You know, obviously, the healthcare workers are on the front, front line of this dealing with because because a lot of data suggests that you get a, a much worse case of this virus based on how long you're exposed to it. So by definition, the healthcare workers that get the, that, that um, uh, get this often get much worse cases. So they clearly deserve, in my judgment, extra compensation for what they're doing. And I think that can come in a couple of ways. That can come by basically the providers paying them more. We've got a lot of money in the CARES Act going towards healthcare providers, which was the right thing to do. Hopefully when we reauthorize the PPP program in this next round of funding, there'll be more money for healthcare. So I think there's money going to the healthcare system that could justify it. But the federal government could also do it by creating a, a, effectively a, a, a form of the earned income tax credit. In other words, an additional tax credit, a, you know, a, a refundable tax credit that could go to people in these designated industries to put more money in their pocket. Because I, I think we all acknowledge they deserve not only a living wage, even when this is over, but during this period of time that they deserve, you know, what used to be called, if you worked overtime, you used to get time and a half, right? right. And, and this is kind of what they're doing all day long in many ways. Can I ask about the presidential campaign now, Alexis? Yeah, you have my, you have my, okay. My <laughs> John, I, so here's a question I want to ask. When when there were uh, like 22 presidential candidates, uh, you know, nine months ago, I would go on our shows at Yahoo Finance and anchors would, like Alexis would always say to me, why are all of these people running? I mean, surely most of them realize they can't win. So why don't you tell us why you ran? Um, you're, you, I think, were the first to start campaigning all the way back in 2017. Did you really think you could win? Were you trying to become famous? What was it? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to become famous and I did think I could win. But, you know, let, let me go back to how I made the decision. When, when April and I made the decision and, and our family, my four daughters, we all got around the table. And I basically said, you know, it seems to me there's three questions. The first is, can we endure this as a family? And the answer to that was yes. The second thing is, did we have something to say that would be additive to the, to the battle of ideas in this country? And in my judgment, the answer to that was yes back then. And I think it was yes at the end of this, like healthcare is a great example. And then the third question is, was there a path to viability? In other words, you can't enter the presidential race saying, yeah, I can clearly see how I'm gonna win because no one can do that. But what you ought to be able to do is see some path to viability. It obviously didn't work out for me, but I do believe the things that I talked about, like how to create a universal healthcare system that is other than the single payer system, I think that changed the whole debate. When I went on the stage in California, the California Democratic Convention, and said to a group of 3,000 Democrats that a single payer system is not the right policy and it's definitely not the right politics, I was booed, literally booed for three minutes straight. After that, editorials 
That was that was one of your biggest news moments, I believe. I remember that. Exactly. But but what followed, what was interesting, was about a dozen editorial boards around the country basically said, Yeah, you may have booed him, but he was right. And you know, and I think that on healthcare, I've changed the debate. And I think that's incredibly important because I I didn't think we were gonna win against Donald Trump by telling more than half the American people that they were gonna be forced to change their healthcare. But I also think as a matter of policy, it's not the right policy. And we can go into why, that's a longer discussion. But there's an example where, you know, I think you can run for president, you, you, you may not be successful, but you can change the debate on some really important issues. And I feel somewhat responsible that we're putting up a nominee who is not running on a single payer healthcare system, because I just don't think we would win on that. It's never going to happen. It's not the right policy. So, you know, th this is how I think you have to look at this decision to run for president. I, out of that group of 22 or whatever the right number was, I always felt there was a, a very uh, compelling group of centrists. And, you know, I go for the centrists because that's who uh, that's who's able to pull people away from the extremes and appeal to, you know, pragmatic people who run businesses and keep the economy uh, and the country running. There was Michael Bennett, mm -hmm. uh, Hickenlooper, the Coloradans, yeah. uh, there, you know, there were a bunch of others. Um, and none, I wrote a story at one point that said all the best Democratic candidates are losing. Now, that doesn't, uh, that's not to slight Joe Biden, but, um, you know, clearly he, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't appeal to young people. He's not the most energetic candidate. Do you, do you, do you just have to be famous to uh, win a presidential nomination? Is that just what it comes down to, do you think? Well, I think what you need and, and this, I will say with the benefit of hindsight, to be successful running for president, particularly in a larger field, you need some natural base that gives you kind of 5% out of the blocks. And that becomes what you kind of pivot off to get traction, to get to the next level. And the problem that like Michael Bennett and I had, because Michael Bennett and I are good friends and I think we look at the world in a very similar way. You know, Vice President Biden, who I now support fully, and I'm, I, I, Michael Bennett supports fully, and we both think will be a, a, a very good president. But when he entered the race, because of his um, name ID, which was 100%, and because people, you know, fundamentally liked him, he had very high approval numbers, he kind of corralled a lot of the voters that I needed or Michael Bennett needed to get our 5%, if you know what I mean. And I think that's really what happened in this race was the vice president kind of corralled up pretty early a lot of the voters that other more problem solving candidates like myself needed to get our 5%. So we never really, the voters weren't ever really there for us to get our kind of our, our, our foothold, if you will. Just a quick follow up on that, then back to Alexis. Um, should uh, should there be some rule in place that limits the number of candidates or limits the number of candidates who can take uh, part in debates? Because those debates with, you know, 10 in one and 10 in the next got a little bit silly. It did. But, you know, I actually think um, I think the way the debate should be done is really pretty simple. If you are if you are or were a Democratic governor, if you if you are a sitting Democratic senator or a sitting Democratic member of Congress, or you're the mayor of a city with more than, you know, whatever a million people, you should be in the debate. And then other people who have none of those other things, meaning people who have never done any public service, if they get a certain percentage, 
they should be in the debates. But basically, if you think about what happened, we had one Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, who won a state that Trump won. You know, when this presidential race started, we didn't actually even have that many Democratic governors, right? The majority of them were Republicans. There was only like one or two of them that had won Trump states, meaning Trump, the President Trump won the state. And so the fact that Steve Bullock, a sitting two-term Democratic governor who had won a Trump state, was not allowed in the debates because he didn't get 135,000 individual donors is just malpractice, you know, in my opinion. So I'm not against the bigger stages. I just think we've got to make sure that people who have some track record of success in the Democratic Party actually have an opportunity to have their voices heard. I think the Republicans actually did it better in 2016. They had a bunch of people and they created like the main stage and the secondary stage. And if you were polling well, you're in the main stage. And if you weren't, you're in the secondary stage. But they had the criteria like I described. I think that's the way you have to do it. Hey, John, um, I just want to get back to um, to this pandemic and, and what, what this administration is doing in terms of small businesses. I know you actually have a lot of experience dealing with, with small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, you were a business owner in your yep. previous life and you co-founded Capital Source, which was a commercial lender dealing specifically with small and mid-sized uh, businesses. We saw that 350, what was it, billion dollars coming from the government uh disappeared pretty quickly in the stimulus uh, package. And they're, look, they're looking as, as of this podcast right now to get more money out to small businesses. What else could, should the government be doing to make sure the money gets to the right place? Because we also heard larger companies like Shake Shack, which I don't think a lot of us would consider a small business, actually got millions of dollars out of that uh, package. I want to go on record by saying Shake Shack is giving back the 10 million, by the way. But I mean, how does something like that even happen? Well, they didn't, you know, and, and listen, I'm not going to criticize them because when you're trying to respond to an emergency, you don't always get everything right. But we should learn from what we've seen and it should inform how we go forward. So what they didn't do is they didn't put any limitations. They basically said 500 employees or below. And if you're a restaurant, you could have 10,000 employees as long as each restaurant is less than 500 employees, which is how the Shake Shacks and the Ruth Chris got in there, right? Because their restaurants themselves don't employ more than 500 people. But as a as a enterprise, they have many more employees than that. So clearly, many businesses have been affected differently than others. The, I look at it simply. If you look at the economy right now, about a third of the companies are actually probably doing quite well. You know, grocery businesses, technology companies, these kind of things. About a third of companies are struggling and there's uncertainty, but there hasn't been this fundamental sea change in their business. And then about a third of the companies in this country, like their whole world has been turned upside down, right? Like if you're a retailer, your government ordered that you be closed, right? If you're an airline, no one is flying. So when you think about relief, you ought to try to put some of those filters on it. And, and what this PPP program did is it basically said, if you're less than 500 employees, you can get one of these forgivable loans. And it doesn't matter which category that I just described you're in. If your business is up, you could actually get one of these loans. So that was a, you know, we should clearly learn from that. It would be better to have the relief more focused on industries 
that are negatively affected as opposed to just saying any small business can get these things. Last question, John, uh, and I can guess one of these. Who are your top three favorite musicians? Well, <laughs> I think you, I'm asking you, for how you, you commented on the the, the, the the signed drum on the wall behind me. Bruce Springsteen. I would say Bruce Springsteen's number one, two, and three. But uh, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm a big Bruce fan. Uh, I actually like country music quite a bit. So I got a whole bunch of country, uh, you know, stars I like. But but my heart is, you know, I'm from Jersey. I've seen Bruce thirty times. So that that's kind of that's almost one, two, and three for me. All right, true Jersey boy at heart, even though yeah. you're sitting there in Maryland. John, exactly. thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Stay safe and be well. This was great. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. And thank you for tuning into this uh, podcast. Be sure to follow us at Alexis TV News. At Rick J. Newman and John Delaney. You want to put your Twitter uh, handle out there? Sure. It's just uh, at John Delaney. All right. Can't get more simple than that. We love it. Thanks, everybody. And stay safe. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having me.